Bossable Podcast is proudly sponsored by Finitech. Finitech is Finland's largest IT contract recruitment agency specialized in connecting the very best IT professionals with the very best companies. The economy is finally on the rise and IT professionals are in high demand. There's hardly a better time to start your own company and become a solo entrepreneur. Yes, the market is that hot. It's not freelancing anymore, it's solo entrepreneurship. As the leading agency, Finitech has a lot of different projects to choose from. Finitech will help you find your next engagement so you can focus on doing what you love and do best. Go to finitech.fi and go solo. Welcome back to another episode of Bossable Podcast. While I was in Australia in June to keynote the Agile Australia conference, I had the privilege to interview Troy McGinnis. When I first heard Troy speak at a conference years ago, I remember how impressed I was with his deep understanding of the mathematics involved in forecasting. After listening to this episode, I think you will be equally impressed. Troy is the founder of Focused Objective, a consultancy that helps companies with forecasting, portfolio planning, risk management, and metric selection. We talk about why three to seven recent samples is often better than thousands of samples from last year, how we need several opposing metrics to prevent local optimization, and how we've lost the art of postmortems. Troy has a ton of resources that are freely available for you to download and try out. For example, you might like the team dashboard Troy has built. After listening to the episode, you can use his tools and take your forecasting to the boss level. Enjoy the episode. You talk a lot about forecasting. So what's the difference between forecasting and planning? Because I think a lot of people use the word planning. Yeah, yeah. forecasting is about getting the answers that you need to do to plan. Ideally, it's about it's a data gathering exercise to help you make a better decision about uh, giving your plans a bigger, better chance of succeeding. Um, so I, you know, I, they can be used interchangeably, but the you know, the role of forecasting is to give you data to help you make a decision. And what do you think are the biggest things that we're doing like wrong at the moment when we do forecasts? I think expecting them to be right is probably the biggest <laughs> sort of problem is, is that that um, they just have to be less wrong than what you're currently doing. They don't have to be perfect. Um, you know, I, I find the best use for forecasts is about understanding where you're going astray. Um, and you would have known that. You would have found that out much later than you would have if you had actually had a bit of a uh, an opinion about where you should be at a period of time. So I think that the value in the forecast is to help you see earlier that you're going wrong. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, being able to see earlier when you're going wrong, that, that would actually imply that 
you don't just do a forecast at the beginning of the project or whatever you're doing, but you actually continuously reforecast. Yeah, we take a take another waypoint check. Am I am I at the point you don't see planes taking off from LA to Sydney and then you know realizing halfway over Europe, crap, we should have turned left back there. They they have an ongoing set of waypoints that they travel through. So I, I think continuously is great if you can do it, but uh, yeah, more than once is, is, is a good. <laughs> it's it, better. It, it's better at the moment than what people are doing. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing I see is people doing the forecast. Then that's it. It's done. Oh, thank God that's over. But that's no. That's the beginning. Yeah. And and also one of the things that you talk about a lot is that we shouldn't like when we forecast, we shouldn't just give out a single date that this is when we're going to be done. Why, why is that? I think the, the value of forecasts is around the discussions. And I think a lot of discussions happen but never get written down. And so even when you ask a team to come up with how long something is going to take to do, you know, they, they have a myriad of questions and options in their head. Well, we could do this or we could do it that way or we could do that. And then they somehow just through osmosis, one gets chosen. And that's the one that gets presented to the final stakeholder who has other information in their head that they haven't shared. But if they did, it might have changed your opinion about which option was better. So I see that um, people come up with an answer uh, where really they need to come up with a list of answers and uh, then go back and sort of saying, you know, this one's better under these circumstances, this one's better under these circumstances and keep a human in the loop, uh, work as a team on it. So that's, that's why I don't like just... One, one value being given back because I think it short circuits better decisions. Yeah, and I think you use uh, Google Maps as an example of this. So can you walk through that example? Because I really yeah. like that example. Okay, I mean, if you do a search in Google Maps between a, a starting point and an end point, it doesn't just give you one option. You know, it gives you in the left nav bar a list of options, uh, normally at least one involving public transport and a couple of others, which if there are major routes... Um, and sure, it has an opinion. It highlights the one which is the shortest and the fastest to uh, in duration. But you know, it lets leaves you in command about which one you're going to take, knowing something about the local weather patterns or even, you know, the the nice scenery. One drive is more scenic than another, so I'm going to give up a bit of time for a better value. Um, and that's that's what I think we need to do in our software world is realize that fastest isn't always best, that um, you know we might have an underinvestment or an overinvestment problem, and you know when do you need it? We get it done by that date, but you have to do X is a much different answer than than sort of just here's X. Yeah. So instead of presenting one option and one like this is how it's going to happen. We should present several options and the trade-offs that we have related to those different options. The trade-offs and concerns. Yeah, yeah. So when you talk to uh, companies about their forecasting, like the way that they forecast, uh, how do you get started? Like, What are the things that you start helping them with so that they get better at forecasting? I think initially, you know, first of all, they're never really happy with what they're doing, uh, which is the reason I'm I'm actually speaking to them at all. Uh, so there's all, already somebody disappointed um, about how their planning isn't isn't turning out to be reality, uh, and it's causing a lot of stress and frustration. So I normally get called in because there's already a uh, a, a large amount of stress around what's going to happen in the coming year. Um, 
I, normally it's about calming them down and telling them about, you know, you're trying to predict the future and it's hard and there's things you don't know yet. And, uh, you know, maybe you need to dial back your expectations about the, your plans being perfect all the time. And then we move on to it's about all I offer is that you'll know earlier that you're wrong. Yeah. But actually, uh, I think that like a lot of people know you for for your your math skills and for for your for your deep understanding of this material. So I would actually expect that people who hire you, they would expect that you will be able to provide like exact answers and better answers. And what you're saying is that the first thing you start doing is actually telling them that you're not going to get this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my first the first part of any project I do with a company is to go back and try and predict the last three months. And if I can't predict the last three months, then I have no no right to go on the record and accept a statement of work for forecasting the future. Um, so I, I tend to lead them down that journey. And then if I can, you know, let's tell me where you were three months ago and let me tell you where you are now. And if I can do that, now we, I think we understand the system well enough to go and predict out the next three, six and nine months into the future. So I tend to let them see and work with me on building that historical backtest forecast to prove that we know enough to forecast the future. So I'm, I'm not giving them any confidence until they've actually seen a result. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. So there's there's a big argument that's been going on for years on whether software teams should uh, try to estimate incoming work or not. Uh, so what's your stance on this whole thing? I mean, if, if if the estimates they're giving are turning out to be useful in the forecasting world, then I, I wouldn't stop them. My My view on all aspects and processes is that there are multiple ways to achieve the result. You know, you know, your job is if two methods give a similar result, you should drop the one which is the largest effort. And what I find is is that um, whether the teams are estimating in points or using planning poker to estimate incoming stories, if you can get a similar result by not doing that estimating, by just counting stories, and it turns out in your domain that you are able to forecast the same result using both methods, then you should drop the one which is the most work, which is having the team stop work and hold up planning poker cards. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, okay, so uh, I talk a lot about that the company should be more data-driven and, and use data to support their decisions and so on. And, and one of the things that I actually often see as a result of companies starting to use more data uh, in their operations is actually stagnation. That actually... Uh, the company slows down because they they start waiting for data for for them to have enough data to make a decision. So it it actually it actually makes things a little worse because then it's okay. You're not uh, only based on opinions anymore, but what you're doing instead is you're waiting for you to ha have enough data to get started. Yeah, I mean this is the the great trade off. If the data that they're capturing isn't what they expected it's you know we're not statistically significant yet um and um you know that's not correct the 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 deal is on you get your most sort of value out of data with the first few samples and then it's you start getting diminishing returns um so if they're waiting to get more data that's 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 just hesitancy normally i just find that that's just they really don't want to do it and they're using that as an excuse 
Um, but can you actually explain that more? Like, uh, you, you said that uh, just from the first few samples, you get uh, enough data. Can, can just uh, oh, okay. well, elaborate. Well, simply try and do this without a visual here. Um, <laughs> so with no samples, you don't know anything about it. If you were sort of saying, what's the team's throughput? and you don't have any historical data there, you can make a guess, but you really don't even have anything to judge whether that guess is accurate. First week goes by, you end up with a piece of data. Okay, so now you've got one data point. Uh, so now you've got a bit of an idea. You at least know whether it's in the thousands, the hundreds, or the tens, um, and you can start um, thinking about what that is. So you get the second week of data. So now you've got two bits of data, and the next sample, the third sample after you've got two, so you got, you're looking at the next sample, it could be below the first one you got, between the two or above the highest one that you've gotten so far. So the chance that the next sample is between the, the two that you currently have, given if we just assume that the next sample could be anywhere, is actually 33%. Because you've got 33% chance below, 33 in the middle, 33 in the upper. You just split the probabilities. So by three samples and now you're looking at the fourth sample coming in you've got only you've got a 50 percent chance that the next sample is between that you have by the time you get to seven you're up around 80 percent chance that it's between the ones you've seen before and then it starts going up marginally and by the time you get to 30 uh you know you're in sub fractions of a percentage improvement for every sample that you get so it's just about when you and you get your most elimination of uncertainty with the first few samples just because the chance that you're picking these samples at random that one is way off somewhere else diminishes over time and even in in medical trials where you you don't want to put you don't want to run a trial too long because it might risk people if the drug is dangerous you don't want to stop too early because you may not have seen that there's a side effect that's critical you know those guys still sort of um only really run on the on the tens of samples to to make a decision about what the dosage should be before they move into sort of larger safer trials so it's it's well known um if people want to google it um you can look up the uh, german tank problem or the london taxi problem um and it's called prediction intervals um, wikipedia prediction intervals and you'll sort of see the the very rapid uh, return on just a few samples and above 30 you'll see almost no benefit at all and in our world why that matters is the older the data we have the more irrelevant it is so I, i'm i'm constantly trying to get people to use less data than they have because it's a <laughs> they're using throughput from teams that were from 2012 yeah. and that's less accurate or useful in forecasting than last week's throughput so I tend to try and get teams to just use the last five to seven samples. Yeah. So basically, uh, last basically, if you have like seven samples from from like the previous seven samples, you're actually pretty good to go. Yeah. Well, you know for a fact that with those previous seven samples, if you use those and go back seven weeks, you can forecast almost perfectly what the place you're at now. Now, you don't know that about the data that you collected back in 2012. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think we should still clarify, like, when we talk about samples uh, in the context of, let's say, for, for the sake of this exp uh, uh, explanation, let's say we're talking about software teams. 
So when we talk about samples, what's a, what's a sample when we're talking about software teams? One piece of data, whether that's throughput, whether that's velocity for the week, whether it's uh, a number of story count for a feature, any, any, any number that you have that you're going to use in a way to try and project out a future, we, we call that a sample. Yeah. Let me just call it a number. By the time you have three numbers or seven numbers, you're pretty. <laughs> the, the chance that the eighth number is going to blow your world away is very low. Yes, yes. I think that's that's a really good uh, piece of information to know that actually, when you reach seven, you're actually really good. That's, yeah, that's you're in good shape. Yeah, yeah. Okay, actually, I think this is a, a smooth transition to uh, to talk about metrics for for teams. So, um, what? What do you think that, what are the most important metrics for, I'm, I'm not sure if we can, gen, can we generalize it that like, what are the best metrics knowledge work teams should use? Or are you like, should we talk about agile software teams? No, I, I think in general, if we look at knowledge work teams or agile teams, I, I'll sort of say that there's no, the actual metric you use to measure is a little bit less important than the category of the measures that you use. Um, and in my world, what I see is if you focus on any one metric or even metric category, people's behavior will change to achieve it Yeah. Um, at the decimation of every other metric that you wish you had measured to try and capture that, you know, the team's trying too hard to, to move in, to move one metric in a good direction, whatever that may be. So I, I tend to... You know, the best metrics that I think that we want to use at the team level do help the team understand that something they've done has caused a change, something measurable that sort of says, okay, we've seen a movement, do we do more or less of it? And then the job of the metric is to detect, the other metrics around that is to detect that you pushed it too far and now you're paying too high a price in another area and you're going to regret that. So... So that's where the, the category is where, I, where I'm sort of saying it's never about one metric, it's about a balanced set of metrics. And that's where I sort of um, you know, borrow greatly from Larry Mascheroni's work on what those measurement categories should be to help you make smarter trade-off decisions. Like let me give up some throughput to get a bit better quality. So, so basically one of the problems when you have just one metric that you're looking at is that you end up locally optimizing just that one metric and your solution to that problem is that we should have a balanced set of more than one uh, metric. They should work in opposition and you should, you should get the teams to uh, try and maximize value across all four rather than any one. And, and what would those four be? Well, the categories again, I mean, you want some measure of quality. You want to make sure that if we move too fast that we can detect that uh, we're paying too high a price and we can't keep up with releasing something that's stable and quality. So, I mean, measures in that area would be, um, you know, number of reported defects from customers or um, the number of deployment failures or the uh, number of times we... Um, release something that people didn't want. It's something to, to measure that we're moving faster than we should. Uh, then the you want to something to measure how fast you are moving. That's the, the those two tend to work often in op- opposition to each other. So some level of how much, some level of productivity, which would be throughput or story points or amount of documents written or amount of features completed 
any sort of measure in that world, again, what you're looking for there is, is you're trying to maximize that by not decimating quality. Or the counter of that, which you see in some domains, is that we're so focused on reducing bug count that we never release anything at all because we're too risk adverse. So those two work in competition to each, with each other. And then the other areas you want is responsiveness, how fast you get things done, how fast you react. So if you had a critical issue came, come in, how quickly can you turn that around and choose to do that to get it out the door? So it's less about doing it faster and more about better prioritization of the work you get. Are you making good prioritization decisions on, on incoming data? And that tends to work against sort of predictability because if you plan to do three features but then some critical issue came up and it's valuable to do, you're going to not get what you expected. So it's about some measure or about how consistently you deliver the rate that you were and how correctly that aligns with what people expected you to deliver. Um, and all those four, it's impossible for a, any system to be perfect at all four and we don't want them to be. We want them to pick a measure that they're better than their peers in the company at and trade some of that for a metric that they're not so good at comparing to the peers in the same context of the company and to start having good discussions about that. So that's, that's the sort of the balance side of the metrics that I use. Uh, and it's again, it's more about the discussion about it. When we choose to make a process change, how could we see if we this isn't right for us. Well, we should see quality. If quality starts going adverse by this amount, we're going to stop doing that. Sure. I think one of the problems that arises from from these uh, these metrics is that they're like no matter what you do, there are going to be simplifications of the of the actual things. So measuring the number of defects that you've had, it's not really a measure of of like how bad we're doing or or so on. It's a it's a proxy metric for that. And and I think like what happens is that you end up simplifying all of these aspects into a single number and you're kind of trying to uh, trying to fix it with with balancing out these these four angles to it but how do you feel like is it doesn't still cause you problems that they are proxy metrics that you're looking at yeah uh, and you've got no choice really because quality isn't made up of any one aspect so exactly. you're trying it's to simplify it down to yeah. a to a to a single value that you got some hope of measuring and it's not your quality metric isn't so much about uh, uh, the how good the product is in any of those measures its only role is to tell you that you're moving faster and beyond your means so it's it's no longer about the value of the metric it's about that we've hit a limit we've we've hit an unacceptable point of trade-off um so if you're looking at the numbers and you're trying to improve the numbers that's that's perhaps the wrong way of looking at it it's about our by making a process choice did we cause more harm than good yeah and that's what you want to try and get your teams to focus on you want to get them to focus on the fact that um you paid an unacceptably high price for for this this idea sure that's actually really interesting because I think that most of the time what the numbers are used for, what happens is that like, I actually think that there's, there's a curse in organizations that whenever you get a measure of any, when you start measuring something, it immediately becomes a target. 
So organizations just turn every measurement into a target that if, if it's if we're measuring revenue or sales or anything like that, it always needs to be a little higher. And if we're measuring costs mm-hmm. or defects, it has to be a little lower. And then everything, every measure always becomes a target. And then when you actually combine that with Goodhart's law, which says that when a measure becomes a target, it actually becomes a really bad measure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then what happens is that every time we get a measure, it ends up becoming a target, and then it ends up becoming a really bad measure. <laughs> and I think what, what's really interesting is that you're actually talking about that we, sh- we should be able to use the measures just as measures. Yeah, leave the, leave the axis values off and just track the trend over time because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a change that was unexpected or too dramatic compared to what you want to do. So often I, you know, I, I leave the x-axis off. There is no values on the chart. It's just a, a, a week-over-week trend of the data. Ah. And the slope of those lines is what's giving you the information you need to make the trade-off decisions. Secondly, though, by having all four, even if they are interpreted by people as a target, there's a balanced compensating value that they will be hurt for by trying to overdrive any one. So Goodhart's law is, is pretty much the reason why I think you need a balanced set of metrics. You can't just focus on, focus on one. But uh, you know, when I roll this out to teams, it's, it's just a trend line um, and not, not the data because the, the number is irrelevant. It's the, it's the rate and percent of change that's more important. So if you have to put a number on the chart, put a percentage gain or loss compared to the previous previous couple of weeks and make sure that if someone says, look, this team over here is delivering more than you are, you show that, yeah, but look at their quality is declining more than ours is. Would you like us to change? Because sure. that's a valid discussion to have. Um, maybe you presume that the company wanted really high quality software. Maybe they're fighting for their life and they just want a few features out Sure. So what you're saying is that we shouldn't be looking at the absolute values that we have, but we should only be using the data to show changes and then talk about the trade-offs that we have and, and how they show in the data that we have. Correct. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a really key point in being able to use data to actually help your organization. Because the other way around, when you use data as you like measurements become targets and then you make things even worse by adding incentives yeah. to those targets. <laughs> and and you do. And this is the point is that every measure and every chart that you build, you know, there's there's three elements to it. There's a what, a so what, and a now what. And you know, the what might be, well this is our our throughput is has, has increased or decreased. But is that change significant? This is you need to make sure that you clearly show that um, there's a panic line. In other words, if it drops a bit, that's fine because we always drop a bit based on just cycles and holidays and daylight hours Variation, in Finland, yeah. right? I mean, it's sort of <laughs> there's there's lots of reasons out that, that are not in the team's control to do. Um, and then the now what is what happens when you cross one of those panic lines? The discussion is about, and it is a discussion. The chart doesn't tell you what to do. Is about well, what do we what do we do now? And that's the that's what I see missing on most metric programs and companies I move into. They're good at showing the, um, the what's. They have no so what. Like, is that bad? Let me, I'm going to assume it's bad because the line's going down. But, <laughs> you know, um, if you zoom out to a, to a level which is, uh, 
you know, look, we did one less story last week. Yeah, but we deliver a thousand a week. That's not significant. And help people quickly see when they should be concerned. And when they're concerned, make sure you have a chart that's the next level of detail so that you can have a good discussion about, well, now what are we going to do about it? Let's, let's sort of um, give up something to uh, bring back stability. Sure, sure. Um, what do you think, like, what, what do you see as the biggest benefits that companies have gained from, from starting to use more data in their forecasting and in the way that they do decisions and, and so on? Oh, less emotion. I mean, decisions now, uh, pretty much everyone comes into the room on a much more consistent amount of, a much, a much more consistent point of view. Uh, whereas everyone had opinions and hearsay, um, when companies start having data and it's freely available, everyone's starting off from the same facts. And I think that's often where we go astray is that um, Group A doesn't even know that Group B doesn't realize that um, you know you're you're moving into a holiday season and you can't make changes to the website because they might risk revenue, and the other group of people who just joined the company have no clue that's even something this company does right and you wonder why they talk past each other and over each other and get emotional it's they don't have any any shared uh, fact basis and i think that's what metrics give you is the ability to see significant difference and to at least start from a common starting point i'm just smiling a little because i'm thinking about like when i ask you what are the benefits of of data and your answer is less emotion that's a very mathematician's yeah. <laughs> answer yeah. like I, less emotion that's always better <laughs> yeah we're the spocks of the industry <laughs> but uh so actually i when i work with clients i actually often tell them uh, that if you're in a meeting where you're discussing based only on opinions you should just stop that meeting hmm. and go get some data then come back and have that discussion yeah. again do you agree with that those discussions are best have had at a bar I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. it, it's okay to get emotional outside of the office but you know you're not even if you do come up with a decision in the room but uh, and it's done emotionally then you you're not going to have buy-in and people are not going to really truly um accept what's going on even though they say they do. So now you've got two problems. You think that a decision's been made, um, but you, it's not going to actually happen. So I think if, if there's an emotional level in the room, get people to do a fist of five about how emotional they feel at the end of a meeting about the decisions that have been made. And if it's above a three, then throw out the, throw out the decision because it's not going to stick. <laughs> you've, got, you've got more work to do. But you could actually make the exact same argument the other way around that if it's if it's less than three we shouldn't go forward because people are not passionate about passionate enough about this yeah yeah <laughs> they probably think janeway is a good captain and you know we're more <laughs> picard sort of uh, people but uh, I, yeah so there's no right or wrong here and and the, sure. the right answer is is if you think a decision has been made then you start tracking data to prove that that's actually occurring and set yourself some targets to understand uh, how to detect that it's not working. And that's that's what we need to use data for. I mean, we can make all the decisions we like until we see evidence that it's actually happening or that we've caused the change that we expected. Um, the decision hasn't happened. So where do you feel like 
what are the times or the places where we should use intuition? Always on the final decision. I think the facts that we have are incomplete at best. Um, I, I think that the we our intuition really is uh, a set of experiences that we've had where we've gathered feedback that we were wrong. Uh, and, and to throw out that gut intuition means that you're throwing out the you know your commercial evolution of understanding the system that you're working in. And there's no way you could capture that knowledge in a spreadsheet. We try. We really do. And we tr- I think the best we do is capture it in summary form. But in all cases I've gone and looked at a project or a forecast that has turned out wrong, there's always been someone who's known that in advance. Um, and they've just never really had the voice or spoken up for some reason, whether it's safety or whether it's um, they just don't feel it will make a difference. So I find that um, intuition plays an underplayed role in quantitative measurement. And, you know, getting people to weigh in anonymously at the end of a decision about give me five reasons why this idea won't work are a great starting point for you to incorporate that thinking and knowledge into your quantitative forecast. Well, how would I know whether that's coming true or not is a great question to ask. And that's, you're never going to get that if you just sit in the room analyzing the things you know, because the gut feeling you have is all about quantifying the things that you don't know and the concerns and the, and the nightmares you have at 3am of a morning. And um, you people are very bad at conveying them. And there doesn't seem a, there's not a cell in Jira that says, you know, what do you reckon that you know, we don't have a we don't have a what do you reckon field that <laughs> that that sort of um gives people a way to surface their uh, darkest thoughts but they're the things that are going to cause any amount of planning to go wrong and we need to find a way to get people to surface them yeah so actually having having a discussion or maybe even trying to put a number on those you might be actually able to use that as data within your forecasts. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I do a couple of things on that. I put a little triangle on the feature board where it sort of says it's not going to happen to almost certain. And, you know, people at night, I've uh, seen people come by and they look at a feature that they're working on and they just move it down to doubtful. And that's great information, right? I mean, no one's had to... Now what I know is that that feature is at risk by a person who's doing it. And they, they're not the one that's got the career investment in saying that it would be done. They're the ones who are actually doing it and they're the ones I need that information from. So give people anonymous ways to, to tell you that something's, gonna, that something's going wrong. Um, every Friday, pick five developers and send them a random survey monkey that says, tell me three reasons why this product's not going to be released on time. Start capturing that data. And if more than three or four of your seven people that you sampled through that survey say we're in trouble, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the kind of sad things is that you don't really want that data because you feel that someone is being negative and what instead you should be able to have a discussion based on that, on the the, the answers to that survey monkey. And and that ends up not happening. Hmm. Is it, you just, you, you just There's get no the, forum for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't have a sharing of the grievances meeting in Scrum. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, or that happens at a bar after work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it happens at lunchtime in when people are out sort of having lunch with their colleagues. And um, you got to find a way of capturing that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually really like uh, postmortems, uh, mm-hmm. the concept where you write upfront when you're starting something new, you write upfront why it failed. Yeah. And then try to figure out like from that, like what, what can you do now to mitigate those risks? And that's, we've sort of lost the art form of risk management in, in, in software development. I mean, it was quite prevalent in the 70s and 80s. Probably your listeners don't realize just how old I am. But I mean, we used to be good at this. We used to, all, all projects looked at uh, a list, had a list of things that were going to go wrong and they needed to work out what they were going to do about. And we really don't have that anymore. But you can't forecast unless you understand the chances about things going wrong because if you don't know that there's even a chance of them going wrong, you're not cognizant and looking for evidence that they're actually going to come to fruition. So I find that, um, you know, in addition to working out what you know you got to do, spend some time asking the team and what's going to stop us getting there. And um, But, yeah, your method of, you know, writing, writing the your resignation letter of why you're resigning based <laughs> on the project failing up front um, is, uh, is a great way to get people in that mindset uh, of communicating something that's too hard for them to say in any other forum. What do you feel that we should spend more time on in general? Is it, is it currently, do you feel that we should spend more time estimating or forecasting or talking about the risks involved and trying to mitigate the risks? I would if I had to spend more time on one aspect, it would be on collecting the risks, the chance that we're going to have to do more work because performance is slow, the chance that it's going to, we're going to need to do more work because of localization or accessibility, the chance that um, the string lengths will be too long when we localize in German. You know, there's, a certain, there's all certain things that are fears which are in people's minds that may or may not cause more work to be done. So that's the type of risk management I, I like to spend more time doing is whenever people get presented a feature they're going to do, get them to also document a list of things that may have to be done to get it released uh, and um, get build the group's intuition up on knowing that those things have happened before and they're going to happen again and does it apply this time is is the muscle that we're trying to build in forecasting um on estimating size of things i think once we do the analysis and if you've been around forecasting projects very long you realize the original amount of work you expected to do isn't isn't significant you know the work spends a lot more time sitting idle than it does moving and even if we were perfect at estimating the touch time it wouldn't matter in the long run because it's all about the system rather than about any individual item so that's why I'm not against estimating. I just don't see it big bang for the buck in a forecasting sense. Yeah. So it, what you're saying is actually like when you do estimation, you should spend very little effort on it because you get the most benefits with just very simple estimation. That's right. Because even if you were twice as good at it, um, it wouldn't change the result by more than a day over six months. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's and that that will change and some companies are you know, are staffed in such a way that they don't have a lot of blocking and waiting time. And those people, okay, your estimates will give you a better insight in the future. 
but that's very rare in our world, in our industry. And you know, mostly, you know, fifteen percent touch time is exceptional. Five percent is good, and average in our industry is around about three percent. That means that work sits idle for ninety-seven percent of the time from the time where we're starting it to getting it actually into a customer's hands. We should be forecasting, estimating that ninety-seven percent of the time. And that's got nothing to do with the piece of work. It's all to do with the system surrounding that work and the process you're using. And I think once people realize that, there won't be these no estimate sort of discussions on the web with quite as much vigor because we'll it's realize that, that I, yeah, I don't think we should be estimating the work and I may even agree that that's right sometimes, but we need to be estimating the risks. We need to be estimating what's the risk of us losing some staff what are we going to do about setting an environment so we don't lose those staff? What's the risk in not having our staff pair and train each other so that we now have, we don't have a single point of failure in a skill set? Those things, if you can get those under control, forecasting becomes easy. Yeah, I actually had a question about like what the kinds of risks we don't really account for properly, but I think we pretty much covered it already. You, yeah, you know. I mean, it, it, that. I thought that I'd be able to one day publish a list of the top 100 risks. Um, still going. You know, <laughs> I'm still at about a thousand. It, it, it really is. Um, what I, I see companies who embark on this process of documenting risk go one of two ways. They either document too many yeah. or they document too few. I've had a go in a, one of the spreadsheets now where I actually do quantify the impact in, in terms and I find that out of 50-odd risks, there might be three which are, account for more than a day's worth of work. <laughs> um, so that's what I, I find is that um, there's a, a lot of ideas about risks that could go wrong. Very few turn out to be significant enough that you should spend more time analyzing. Um, so if you're going to do risk analysis, do it fast. Um, cull the ones which are going to be less a, a fractional part of the plan's length of time and then focus on the top couple that are in your control to do and accept the others. What I really like about the things that you're saying all the time is that you're all the time talking about when we get data or when we do any of these things, you're always talking about how do we actually use them and what decisions will they drive and how will we change our like the way that we operate based on this data. Because I think often these kinds of things, they become a value in themselves and then you just end up spending a lot of time like just gathering data or doing risk analysis and, and then there's a separate person responsible for doing risk analysis as a full-time job and it, it, it becomes a huge thing and it becomes separated from the actual work and it's different people doing it and then actually the impacts of the whole thing are very close to nothing. Or damaging. Yes, yeah, or damaging. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're more often damaging. I think, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's right. These, these, these are tools to help you make a decision and then you move on. Um, I see a lot of people spend a lot of time capturing data when, uh, classic one, planned versus unplanned work. Uh, I see people putting in great processes where people capture all their unplanned work. Well, you'd get the same result if you got them to capture their unplanned work for three days. Yeah. Because it probably doesn't change. Uh, and, uh, you know, it might be intrusive to capture that data for three days, but I see a lot of companies try and capture that same data for three months. That's, that's terrifyingly damaging. Uh, 
Yeah. And it doesn't give you any information other than, well, these are our top three sources of unplanned work. Maybe we should incorporate it into the planned work. Right. And that's, that's, that's how you want to iterate on these, on, on gathering data. Gather data, make a decision, detect whether it's had the impact you expected. Run that three-day experiment of sample again in three months' time and see if you've got a new set of three. Hopefully the current three have disappeared because now you've put them into some method of being planned. But if you come back in three months' time and you end up with the same three, your, your process change has been ineffective. Yes. And that's, that's sort of what we want to avoid. Yeah, yeah. So you're capturing the data up front to make a decision about what you're going to do and you're capturing the data on the tail end to confirm that what you expected happened. Exactly. If exactly. you're doing any more than that, you're wasting time. Yeah. And you're also all the time you're emphasizing that that we should also be very concerned about like what is the effort that we're putting into it and what is the value that we're getting out of it and balancing the two because we it's I think it's very easy to get stuck with like just using a lot of effort and not get getting the the benefits that are like make make it worthwhile. Chronic. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, a lot of processes sort of have that built in. They actually say, you know, you should do X. And they should say, well, you should do X until, yeah, yeah. and or you should, and you should stop doing X if, yeah. You know, they never, they never put boundaries on. You know, this will become unuseful at some point in time because the team has this under control. Stop it for a while, test it again in six months' time to see if it's a behavior you need to control. Yeah, yeah. So you've actually you've been doing this for quite a while, and you have a lot of resources that are freely available online. And I will I will put a link into uh, in the show notes so people can access that. But could actually uh, talk a little about the resources that you have. So what kind of stuff do you have online, and and what are the like the most popular ones, and what are they being used for? Okay, yeah, great question. There, uh, everything I've done is free and and, and available, uh, and a lot of them took years to produce. So it's Initially painful, but they've got to go out and prove their worth. And, um, you know, that's going to walk the talk, right? If I'm going to learn from failures, then I should have a larger set of people fail on my tools rather than me doing it. Um, <laughs> so I have, I, every, I have a long-term memory section where I do these single-page cheat sheets, uh, prioritization, uh, you know, forecasting, explaining the terms we did earlier about how little data you need to make decisions. I have single-page sheets on each of those topics that are great to hand out to people to sort of say, okay, rather than answering it, read this and if you've got questions, come back and talk to me. And then the spreadsheets I have, um, the most popular ones are I have one that does a sampling approach to uh, project size. So rather than breaking down every feature or epic, you just break down five to seven of them and it can project out a total story count for... 100 or so sort of whatever you whatever you want the total story count to be and that often is a great tool to make a quick go no-go decision about whether something is bigger or smaller than something else um and that's sort of a nice monte carlo sampling sort of technique but it's just a spreadsheet every formula is in there it doesn't use any macros so it's not if you get it you can you can see how it works and and understand it um, probably the most popular would be the throughput forecasting spreadsheet, which can do throughput or velocity forecasting. It's still just a number. But that gets you to give very broad range guesses of size, starting size and and delivery rate of throughput or velocity, and it does a Monte Carlo forecast for you. So you can say things like, I'm 85% certain we will, this is a 16-week duration project. And if we started 
next week, it would the delivery the delivery date would be June the twenty seventh, um, and it does it 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 also helps you then track your actuals against that forecast so you can see where you're going to be, and that one it had about three or four times the inputs that it had. And the biggest change to that over the years has been I've been taking things out. Okay, you've so been simplifying I've it. been simplifying and as I've seen that things aren't significantly changing the result in the real world, they're just causing more email questions to me, I, re- I remove it. So it went from about 15 inputs down to about five now. Wow. And I, don't, I think I'm at the point now where I haven't removed anything for about a year Um I've had to add extra explanatory text on the things which are there, but I haven't had to remove things. So that's that's the process they go through. And then I have another one of that, a variation of that, where you put in five or ten features and it tells you which aren't going to hit a release date. And most companies start off with doing a single project or feature and then they move on to trying to plan a portfolio. So those two work hand in hand and that just gives you a a ticker across as to something that's going to hit a date or not. And the biggest thing I feedback I get from those are the fact that it's taken the emotion out of it because it's using the historical data of the team throughput samples or broad range estimate. No one's had to completely agree on a single number. If I say it's five and you say it's 10, we put in five to 10 (laughs) and, and, and it's not about, we have to agree on seven. Um, and and you've, it very quickly moves over because if you enter the samples from a team, it very quickly works out that it should use the samples. Um, and the emotion gets discharged based on the fact that you can sort of say, I don't like the answer either, but this is what we're currently doing. So unless we change something to the system, this is what's going to happen. And that's the... Um, the so I find the spreadsheet tools, they're about driving the right conversations rather than about the numbers and that's what they over the years i've tried to highlight in them you know the, the conversations you'd have when this doesn't say what you wanted it to say i i i'm just thinking that this is such a like overarching theme that whenever you talk to people who are really like into the topics that they're into they they always end up emphasizing that the that the tools that you have they're only important for the discussions you can have uh, with the tools or with the help of the tools and the tools are actually irrelevant in any other way it's just mostly about the discussions it's about building a shared understanding so you can have a discussion that's all these tools are for yeah yeah one other tool that uh, i think you have is is a tool for for the uh the team metrics that we talked about the balanced metrics can you talk a little about that yeah often when i go into places they're they're freaked out. They sort of say, we don't have enough data to do anything. Um, and I I built, uh, it started off as a bit of a dare. I sort of said, well, I wonder how many charts I could do if I just had the date that work completed and just the date work started. And I ended up with 17 odd charts. And oh, oh, what can I do? Well, let's add whether it's a story or a defect type. And now I add another sort of 10 charts to that. So, um, and then I was doing training and I was talking about doing the balance metrics. And someone said, well, what out of these 30-odd charts, which one should I do? And I said, well, I'd pick that one, that one, that one, and that one. Of course, they said, well, we like this one, this one, this one, and that one. I mean, that was okay. Uh, And I realized very quickly that why don't I just create a new worksheet tab there and put those the the charts on. So this spreadsheet, what it does is you just capture the date that work was completed, the date that work was started, and the date and the type of work, whether it was a bug or a story. 
and it builds you that balanced dashboard with my opinion. And then you can go and choose one of the other 30-odd charts to replace my opinion. Um, and it's now pretty much ubiquitously used. Everywhere I go now, that's that's the way I'm in the door. They The first thing they implement is that spreadsheet because they they thought they needed tons of different fields and custom fields put in Jira. And all I said, well, if you're using post-it notes, it's on the left, right, the date it started, and on the right at the bottom, right, the date it ended and give it to me. <laughs> use pink for a bug and use yellow for a story. And I can type in that data and, of course, it, it trends it over time and puts the focus on the trends and does all the good practices I expected. So that's the team dashboard. And that just happens to give you the right data to put into the forecasting spreadsheets, <laughs> which uh, is <laughs> awesome. the next step that they go through. So it, it was, it, it's a very quick way to calculate the throughput numbers and the growth rates that you're actually encountering. But they, the gateway drug was them getting a, a cool team dashboard to use. So that's actually a great place to start. Great. Thanks a lot for your time. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Next steps. Number one, share this episode with your organization so your colleagues can also learn about forecasting and risk management. Number two, share this episode on social media. Number three, go to Troy's website and try out some of the free resources. The link is in the show notes. Have a great week.